<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is Success How I Did It from Business Insider. I'm Allison Chantel. This week, we have a doubleheader from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Craigslist founder Craig Newmark tells us how, at first, he didn't quite know what he actually had created. People around me, though, told me that I had invented a brand, Craigslist. They explained to me what a brand is, and I'm being literal here. (laughs) That's coming up later in the show, and we'll have some news from me at the very end. But first, we've got Lynn Dowdy. In 2015, Dowdy became the first female chairman and CEO of KPMG, one of those giant companies that other giant companies hire to do things like their accounting and auditing. While most kids were watching TV or playing with friends, Dowdy was actually helping her parents doing things like account receivables for their family-owned trash pickup company. I guess I was always destined to be an accountant, and I really loved that. But, you know, through the years watching their business grow and watching them succeed and how they were so focused on their customer, on their employees. And it just taught me a lot about business, although it wasn't like they sat me down and said, here's how you do this. It was, you know, just watching them because it was such a part of our family. Yeah. You grew up in the area and ended up going to Virginia Tech. I did. And you studied, I think, didn't you start in computer science? I did start in computer science. And then you switched to accounting. I did. So what was that transition like? Kind of how did you figure out what you wanted to do? (laughs) Well, you know, back in the 80s, I didn't know anything about computers before going to college. There was no PCs or anything like that. So I had no idea what I was getting into. And it was hard for me. Computer science was was tough, but I stuck with it. You know, it's like I can do this. And actually, I could have. But, you know, I, I remember this class where they said, okay, now we've weeded out all the people who can't cut it, and you guys are the ones who are you know, going to do this. You probably remember a class like that in mm-hmm. school. And I thought, okay, I did this, but you know, I don't really like this. Um, back then, it was a lot of coding. And so I took some business classes, and it was kind of like, this is what I know. This is what I enjoy. It was more people-oriented. And I think getting a major in accounting at Virginia Tech was, you know, one of the best things that I could do. Clearly, I mean, your career has <laughs> taken off. Um, but you actually started at KPMG. So I did. You are a lifer. You've been there for your whole career, which is amazing. So talk to me about how you found yeah. KPMG when you came out of school and what brought you there. Yeah, I think that was 
and it still is today, one of the great things about accounting is there are so many options. And, you know, particularly if you're at a, a school that has a top-notch accounting program, the companies kind of flock um, to you. Uh, my attraction, though, to KPMG, and I think this is with everybody, it's, it's that person you meet. And I think back then, you know, there were not as many women in leadership roles. You know, this was 1985. And, and I remember meeting a woman from KPMG who was so impressive and articulate and kind, and she made me feel so comfortable. And so that, that was kind of my first face of, of KPMG, which was very different from the other companies that I was talking to. And, and that had a big impact on me. It, it was something different and special that drew me to KPMG. And, you know, and then you look 30 years later, you know, you probably don't expect that when you start out, but public accounting is a great place to start a career. It's a great place to end a career because you get a variety of experiences. And that was, that was my experience. And I think that's what kept me in the profession all that time. Yeah. And when you started, you were on the audit side, right? Yes. And you rose through the ranks pretty quickly there. And by your mid thirties, you really wanted to be a partner, Um, but the economy didn't cooperate. So tell me about that experience. It seems like it was a bit disappointing, but you certainly bounced back. So how did you deal with, you have this dream, you're going to go for it. And then all of a sudden you realize it might not happen. Yeah. You know, and look, looking back, you know, my early career, I probably wasn't as broadly focused as I should have been. You know, I I really kind of had this, you know, I'm going to do this industry. I want to do this one thing that I knew and I was comfortable with. And actually, my career was progressing along those goals. And I share with many people in my my story was, you know, actually the year that I was up for partner, I knew the exact clients that I would be working on. It was all comfortable. You know, you're at the top of your game. But that was also a time where there were some external forces happening in the business world, a consolidation in the banking industry, uh, where I saw one right after the other of my clients that were acquired. And basically, my business case of, you know, my goal of achieving partner working in this particular industry in auditing in Richmond, Virginia, it evaporated, you know, really quickly. And so at that time, it seemed like this huge disappointment. And it was, and I can remember feeling a bit sorry for myself because it wasn't anything that I did. It was bad luck, really. It was actually good luck for me because it forced me to think more broadly about other avenues that I could explore. And there was an opportunity at that time to go into information risk management, which would allow me actually kind of back to my computer science roots to do something different that I never would have done if it hadn't been for, you know, one door being closed. And during that time, I felt uncomfortable because it was something that I needed to learn and uh, build my experience. And it was risky too, because you feel like I'm in this space. I know it. I'm really good at it. And now I've got to kind of start over and prove myself. What I learned, and this would become a series of opportunities for me that, you know, when you feel you're most uncomfortable and maybe scared a little bit and, and nervous, that's actually great because that means you're growing. 
And so I think it's important to take some risks. And I think it's important to ensure that you're getting a variety of work experiences. You know, careers are really long. At 13 years, it seemed like, you know, if I don't do this one thing, my career's over. No, it was just starting. And I think that my ability to rise through the ranks at KPMG, I was clearly benefited by having a variety of experiences. And I think I was fortunate that I was in some ways kind of forced to make a change. You know, in hindsight, I should have been more proactive about looking for change. Yeah. I mean, one of your pieces of advice, and you did touch on this a little bit too, is that you should take risks and you need to be confident um, and you need to raise your hand for jobs that you might not even feel ready for. Um, Is that something you did and how should someone do that? Yes. I think that even when you're unsure, there are so many things that, you know, made you successful in these other areas that you can apply to new areas. So being confident in your abilities to be successful in new areas, taking risk, I think it's important. I always think about this concept of confidence and you know how do you get it? And it shouldn't just come because you say, I'm smart and I can do this. I think it comes from action. You know, It's actually just jump in, do it, impress the heck out of yourself, that's how you get confidence. And then as each new challenge and opportunity comes, you jump in again, you do it, you say, okay, I can do this. And that's how the confidence builds. And I think that this confidence factor is really an an interesting one. And, you know, there's also some interesting gender dynamics when you talk about confidence as well. And I just encourage, you know, everybody who's going through their career that the things that have made them successful heretofore will make them successful going forward. You know, just embrace it and go for it and speak up about, as you said, speak up about the things that you're looking for and the opportunities and new challenges that you want to take on. The gender roles, too, I can appreciate. And I wonder what you think about quiet confidence versus kind of assertive confidence that you yeah. think of. Can you be successful in both? Like, can, can you be an introvert and also be confident and lead a great team? I think you absolutely can. This was a dialogue that was happening last night here in Davos, where there were a group of women talking about this very topic, because, you know, there are differences between women and men and our styles of leadership. And I think stereotypically, there is this view that men from a confidence factor are off the charts confident, even if they don't have the experience that's required for a certain role. They believe they do. They believe they have even more than that, you know, where women have the opposite view of questioning, do I have enough? Mm-hmm. Um, I want, I should, I should tick off, you know, if, if it requires these five things and if I don't have all five, I'm not feeling that confident about it. Where men, if they tick off one, they're saying, okay, I got this. And one is not right or wrong, but somehow we've labeled it as being wrong, that women are taking the wrong approach. And so, you know, there's this concept that I heard some folks talk about last night that I thought was really interesting. You know, we need to kind of break down these myths of a woman's approach is the wrong one. And she should be acting more like a man where we should think about how do we as business leaders embrace the differences of all people and advance the careers of all. So I wanted to ask you some questions about becoming CEO. Uh, It's 2015, you get this 
huge promotion, well-deserved. Yeah. You were running the fastest growing yeah. division of KPMG and you got this job. Yeah. So first off, what's it like to be promoted to CEO? Like what's the conversation that happens? What, what happens? What's it feel like? Well, you know, when you take on those, you know, these new roles and I think you have some butterflies and you think is what got me here going to help me be successful in this new role. So it's, it's hugely exciting it can be a little scary at first, like any new yeah. role. Oh my gosh, I'm running 30,000 people. <laughs> but then I think that, you know, you quickly realize that it's humbling. It's an honor, especially when you've, you know, just like you spending a long time in one place, um, me being able to lead uh, the firm that is just a part of me that I love. You feel a sense of responsibility to do the very best you can because it's, it's all about people that you care about and the work that we do is really important. So there's a certainly a sense of responsibility that goes with that. Of course, being the first uh, woman CEO at KPMG, you know, there's a an opportunity to show women the the opportunity that I didn't have to see a woman do that role. You know, I feel really excited that I can I can be in that role and I can be that role model for future generations of women as well to see a woman lead. It's amazing. And it just shows that this is a profession that all can succeed. And I think, I think it's a great time for our profession to see women's leadership. I mean, it's huge strides. So you were the first and now there's three running yes. big firms, which is incredible. But it is still a, a small list of CEOs as a it whole. Is. So you're one of the few female CEOs here at Davos. I know you've uh, been recognized as a top woman uh, in business. And you've also talked about the sense of responsibility that you feel to be a role model. How do you take on that responsibility? Like, what do you do with kind of that feeling? How do you, how do you do that? Well, I think as women leaders, we do have a sense of responsibility to make a difference. As you said, even here at Davos, we at the World Economic Forum, there is still, you know, we're only in the 21% female representation. Mm -hmm. And so it's not changing uh, fast enough. And so, you know, you want women to lean in as, as Sheryl Sandberg suggests, which I think is so powerful. But we also have the opportunity as women leaders. I feel a sense of responsibility to also reach in, mm -hmm. to reach in and encourage and sponsor and mentor and to show women that they can do this. And I think that's very powerful. It's actually, it's, it kind of you know, it goes full circle to how we started the conversation about even just me seeing my mother and my father and the things that they did. You kind of see it and you can see yourself doing that. And I think women leaders have that sense of responsibility to take action and ensure that um, that we are creating opportunities for all. And the world is changing so fast. And, you know, the big topic here is around digital transformation, artificial intelligence, all the things that are changing the landscape of our world so quickly. It has never been more important to have different perspectives at the table. To be successful in business requires a diverse you know, set of leaders around the table. You don't want everybody with the same experience and background. And so it's never been a more important topic, I think, for business you know, not because it's just the right thing to do, because it's a business imperative to be successful. 
you know, being a CEO comes with a lot of responsibility, just tough decisions sometimes you have to make. Yes. It's not all glory. No. <laughs> um, at all. It's a lot of work. So one tough decision you had to make that you got wide praise for was last year. There were six executives who had found some insider information yeah. a bit at KPMG. They learned that an audit was going to happen right. with your guys' firm. And you made the prompt, quick decision to fire all six of the executives. How did you make that decision and... I mean, it was widely praised, but I'm sure it couldn't have been easy. No, and I think all leaders at some point in time, you're going to face tough decisions. Mm -hmm. And it's really important that, you know, the way I approach that, and I think others should as well, is you have to seek the facts. Mm -hmm. It's not something that you do in isolation. It's getting the perspectives, you know, seeking the truth. And I think it's also looking at the core values of what you as a person and as a leader stand for and what your organization uh, stands for. And there are, there are certain things that are zero tolerance. And it doesn't mean that you want bad things for people, but you know there are consequences. And you have to set the tone for the organization. And so I think as any leader or future leader approaches those tough decisions, it is important that others are involved, but sticking to what you know is right from your own core is important. And then also, usually if it's a really tough one, you've got to be decisive and move quickly. And finding that right balance of seeking the facts, moving quickly, uh, getting to the right answer can be tough, but it's something that Others are watching, and it's important that you you set the example for your organization. I think the decisiveness is really important. You can't waffle. Once you make a decision, you just have to own it and lean into it. Exactly. And also, look, leaders aren't perfect. You're going to make some mistakes, and it's it's owning those mistakes as well. And, you know, that kind of gets back to the authenticity and real, and it's just being very transparent about you know, here's what I thought through. Here's the decision that's in the best interest of our institution and um, explaining that and then moving forward. And I think when you do that, you get to the right answer. You were once asked about uh, what you feel success is, what success looks like. And you quoted Mark Twain. And you said the two most important days in your life are the day that you were born and the day you find out why. Success is finding your purpose, you said, and living it. Yeah. So how do you figure out what success looks like to you and how would you advise other people who want to reach the top like you did? Well, you know, it's a journey too. And I think that if you had asked me that question when I was 30, you know, I was at a different point in time, you know, having young babies and trying to figure life out, you know, it gets complicated. I think, I think you do get wiser as you get older. At least that's what I tell my kids uh, because I'm, I'm full of lots of advice. Um, sometimes you can get really, you know, things are hectic and you're just go, go, go. You know, you really need to take some time to focus on what is it really that are the most important things in your life. This isn't just about careers and promotions and, you know, it's finding that balance isn't the right word, but all aspects of your life. It's physical. It's mental. It's the things that you're accomplishing in business. It's spiritual. Do you really know what you're striving for? And that kind of gets back to purpose. You know, it's like, what can I do here to make a difference? 
And I think when you really explore that and then you live it and go for it, I truly think that is success. Lynn, thank you so much for the time. It's been really a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. And now for the second interview. In the early 90s, Craig Newmark was working in San Francisco and trying to adjust to life in a new city. So in 1995, he started an email list to help him adjust. And eventually, that became a website by the name of Craigslist. Selling furniture, finding apartments, and finding a missed connection would never be the same. Business Insider's UK editor-in-chief, Jim Edwards, spoke with Newmark on the streets of Davos. Newmark isn't too involved in the site he built anymore, and instead he's focusing on philanthropy, in projects ranging from supporting military families to combating fake news. But in order to become the Craig of Craigslist, he first had to find his way from suburban New Jersey to the tech capital of the world. Tell me the story of how you got from Morristown to San Francisco. Uh, from Morristown to Case Tech of Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, I thought I would be a uh, quantum physicist. I realized I was not smart enough, decided to go into computer systems, hoping to go into artificial intelligence, which was a great decision 40 years premature. Uh, so what was your first proper job after you graduated from college? Um, in late 76, I went to work for IBM in Boca Raton, working on a, a mini-computer called the Series 1, which is now no more than a, a historical mention. What was the purpose of the Series 1? Things like process control, or perhaps data processing needs in a small business. But I'd guess that my watch now has more computing power. So this would have been like a sort of business enterprise type thing, like a classic IBM product. Uh, not so classic. No. <laughs> it, uh, it, didn't, it never had much of a life. Okay. I learned a lot from that. And uh, roughly how old were you at this time? Early 20s for the first six years. But then I got transferred to uh, IBM's Detroit operation to work with General Motors. And it's there that some major lessons uh, sunk in. Give us an example of I could be what you jerk. learned. You could be a jerk. Yeah. I, uh, What's an example of you being a jerk? Well, uh, technically I was fairly adept, but sometimes I would correct marketing reps when they were talking to a customer, which was really quite stupid of me, and it took me a long time to catch on that it was really stupid of me. On the other hand, I had a sense of humor, and the comedy bar was very low, so I could get away with a lot. But I had to learn to not be a jerk. And is that something you still apply today? Nowadays, 
even though I'm still very much a nerd of the old school, I can, for limited times, simulate normal social interaction. Because I could interact as humans that normally do. Tell us the story of how you first invented Craigslist. I can't take credit for inventing Craigslist. In my first year or two in San Francisco, a lot of people helped me acclimatize myself to the town. They helped me understand what neighborhoods were good and, you know, maybe where to shop. I got a lot out of it. Early 95, I decided I should get back. Started a simple mailing list. It succeeded via word of mouth. I had to call it something at some point. Was going to call it San Francisco Events. How many people were on the email list at its height? Well, around that time, about 250 people. Now, people around me, though, told me that I had invented a brand, Craigslist. Yeah. They explained to me what a brand is. <laughs> and I'm being literal here. <laughs> okay. The design of Craigslist originated in my observation that people want something which is functional, effective, simple, and fast. That design uh, philosophy has been maintained throughout. Uh, people tell us they don't need anything slick, they don't need anything fancy. They want to get through the day because Craigslist is about putting food on the table. Craigslist is about getting a table to put that food on. Craigslist is about getting a roof under which to put the table. And you don't need slick to do that. And in fact, slick gets in the way. That worked for a while, but by the time uh, the end of 98 came around, people helped me understand then that I needed to make it into a real company or it would fail. I, ma I decided to monetize as little as possible, partially because of that Sunday school lesson, no one enough is enough. Okay. Because VCs and bankers at that point told me I should do the usual Silicon Valley thing and make some uh, billions. But no one really needs billions of dollars except to give away. And how, how many people uh, are employed at Craigslist right now? Right now, there's, uh, I think, around 40. But my, these days, since 2000, when I stepped down from the CEO role, I've had uh, not much influence in the way the company uh, operates. Most of those years were customer service. But they don't need me to be a customer service rep these days. I haven't coded since 99 or 2000. So my role is minimal. What's it like being famous and having your name on the product? I don't believe uh, that I'm famous. I may not be capable of believing that because I am a nerd of the old school. Um, and so it's hard to say. Now and then I'll get some attention and for a few moments it will feel good and then I have to get back to work. Are there any advantages? Once in a while, I may get something like a, a free badge of some sort. <laughs> or uh, maybe, maybe I'll get uh, something like a free, uh, a free cell phone battery. That's very okay. exciting. Okay. <laughs> what about the disadvantages? Are there any things that you regret or wish had not happened? Sometimes people fail to understand that I'm not in Craigslist management nor a spokesman, but they will expect me to act as such. Right. People expect me to make management decisions, and I have to disappoint them. You have no regrets about not doing the whole VC thing? No, I have no regrets not doing my own uh, IPO. I plan to give away a great deal more money to a charity. I've already committed to do so, and trying 
to figure out how I, as an amateur philanthropist, I'm trying to figure out how I can do that most effectively given the realities of this time. My last question, I guess, would be if you could give your younger self some leadership or management advice from what you learned in your career and building Craigslist, what's the one thing you wish you had known right at the beginning? That I shouldn't be a jerk. In business, one may have some dysfunction. Somebody may explain it to you, but if you're not ready, you don't understand. If you're lucky, you'll understand years later. Thank you. Thank you very much. This was great. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It from Business Insider. This show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Dan Richards. Dan Bobkoff is the executive producer, and I'm Allison Chantel. I have loved being the host of the show for the past year, but I'm also excited now to pass on the torch to my colleague and the show's new primary host, Business Insider senior reporter Rich Filoni. You already know Rich. He's done great interviews on the show with people like Reid Hoffman, Tony Robbins, and Damon John. He'll be taking over full-time next week, and you're in great hands. And don't worry, because I'll still be back from time to time. Make sure to subscribe to Success How I Did It on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro... Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.